All right, we're in question, it's Lord's Day 35, question 96. Kids, do any of you have this one memorized by chance? What does God require in the second commandment? No? All right, work on these. What is the second commandment? All right, Kate gets the prize. She knows the second commandment. Do not have or carve idols or images. So the 96 says, what does God require in the second commandment? That we in no wise, in no way, in their old way of talking, make any image of God nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. Think about the first commandment, which is no other gods. And if we, as I suggested last week, view these first commandments through the lens of worship, our relationship toward God, then the first commandment is, ask, or is about who we worship and who we don't worship. We will have no other gods before him. We will put our affection for him before everything else. And so the object of right worship is God. It's Yahweh. It's not any one or thing else. So then the second commandment, which starts with this manufacture and use of idols or images, is, is not just about the, the making and the carving of those things, but it's about what? It's about how we worship. No idols is about how we worship. And this is what we're going to see in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, God could have laid down ten philosophical principles for moral living. But that's not the way he chose to do it. The way he chose to do it was to give us good morning, ten concrete uh, examples from which we abstract the philosophical principles. So all, these Ten Commandments give you one specific, concrete example that illustrate a general principle, which is the law itself. Well, how do I know this? Well, I know this from both Testaments. In the Old Testament, you have a tremendous amount of what we would call case law. You have lots of examples in the Old Testament of seeing God, either directly or through the prophets, interpret and apply one of the Ten Commandments. And they will apply it in a way that's more broad than just the one specific illustration that's called out in the Ten Commandments. Does that also happen in the New Testament? Yeah. How early does Jesus do that? <laughs> Immediately. Sermon on the Mount. What do you think that whole deal is with, you've heard that it was said, don't do this, but I say to you. So you think that thou shalt not kill is about one specific example of not committing physical murder. But what am I telling you that that is one specific example of the moral general principle that says love, life, hate, death. Same thing with adultery, right? The Ten Commandments are given in concretes rather than abstracts. But Scripture has always, Old and New Testament, interpreted those abstracts as being examples of principles. 
and those principles are the moral law. Does that make sense? So when you get to the second commandment, the concrete example is one that is very prevalent and familiar in the days of Moses. It's still concrete and familiar today. People just don't acknowledge it as much that way. Where you would have carved images, visual representations, other than what God had given, that you would use for the purpose of worship. And you say, oh, well, that's just something pagans do. That's not something that believers do. What's the most famous story example in the Old Testament of the second commandment being violated? I know, you have a million to choose from. But what's the most famous example? The golden calf. What happens in the golden calf story? Well, people worship a carved idol. Is that what the text says? They worship God. They worshiped Yahweh through the idol. They were trying to worship the one true God. They were keeping the first commandment. But they were breaking the second commandment. They were trying to worship Yahweh through the golden calf. Hey, God won't show himself. We're not satisfied with the ways that God has showed himself. Do you know what that golden calf scenario was really about? We're not satisfied with the timing with which God shows himself. God doesn't show up visibly when we want him to show up. So we will make a representation of God that will be there whenever we want it. We will worship God on our terms. And as the great prophet theologian said, they chose poorly. It didn't work out so well. Second commandment forbids in, in a concrete example, the manufacture or use of these things, but the general principle underlying it that you see in the case law of the Old Testament and you see of the words of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament is that God should be worshiped how God says he should be worshiped. And if you think about worship, there's really only two options here, right? One option is that God would be worshiped as he directs, and that way you know it's pleasing to God because God's being worshiped in the way God said he should be worshiped, or God should be worshiped by whatever means we please. God is just so tickled pink that we showed up to worship him. He doesn't care how we worship. He doesn't have a vested interest and in if our worship is useful to him or to us. You hear how insane the things I'm saying are? God doesn't have a vested interest in worship. He's not interested in whether our worship is useful to him or to us. Of course God is interested in those things. And that's why he described how he's to be worshiped and the ways that God are to be worshiped are the ways that God has prescribed and not the ways of human inventions or imaginations. So there's a very general important principle here. God should not be worshiped in any way other than how he's commanded in his word. So first principle, think about the context of the commandments. They're about worship, the first four, who, and now we're talking about how. And when we talk about how, it's either going to be God's way or our way. And it's just silly to think the answer to that would be our way. <laughs> the answer has to be God's way. And therefore, the ways we worship 
are the ways that God has commanded and not the ways of human inventions or imagination. We'll come back for questions when I'm done. All right. Lord's Days 36 and 37 are about the third commandment. Does any kid know what is required in the third commandment? It says, what is required in the third commandment? That we must not, by cursing or perjury, nor by unnecessary swearing, profane or abuse the name of God, nor by our silence or connivance become partakers in those horrible sins in others, and briefly, that we use the holy name of God no otherwise than with fear and reverence to the end that he may be rightly confessed and worshipped by us and be glorified in us in all our words and works. All right. Third commandment is about taking the name of God in vain. Yeah, Wang Jang. Um, I had something written down back in this chapter I wanted to find. Uh, trick question. I think this is one of the mis most misunderstood commandments. Trick question. What part of the body is the primary concern of this commandment? All right, I told you it was a trick question. So what's the wrong answer? We think this is a commandment about the mouth. Don't say the wrong stuff. That is the concrete illustration. That is not the principle. Because this is about the attitude of worship. This commandment is that we must believe and therefore tell the truth about God. You've got to see this commandment in light of the first two. You've got to remember contextually that we're dealing with worship here. So in the first commandment, we get the object of worship. In the second commandment, we learn the manner of worship. And in this commandment, we're going to learn the attitude of worship. What is the proper attitude of worship? What does it mean to take a name? What, by and large, I know cultural conventions are changing, but by and large, when a man and a woman are married, and we say that the woman takes her husband's name, what does that mean? She, she unites herself into a new kind of identity that's based on his headship. What do you think the third commandment means when it says take his name? Do you think it's only talking about talking? What does the concept of take mean in the Old Testament? It's a very intimate relational connectedness. So when you take the name of Christ, have any of you taken the name of Christ 
Are any of you Christians? Have you not taken the name of Christ? When you take the name of Christ, it ought not be in vain. In fact, it must not be in vain. Your attitude of worship has to be true. It has to represent a genuine affection, love, honor, awe, submission, union to and with Christ. I'm going to read from my Williamson commentary here. Why it may be, oh, this is about, for the record, um, you remember in the third commandment, this is the first one that comes with a warning, right? It's, it's real bad. Don't break this. It says in 10, I don't know. I don't know. Why does it include, I thought it was in one of the catechism questions right there. And I look at it, I'm like, no, no, it doesn't mention that at all. So let me just read this. But why, it may be asked, does God include such an awesome warning as part of this commandment? It is not because of, is it not because of the danger of a superficial, purely external religion? Have you ever thought about the third commandment in terms of hypocrisy? In terms of when I say I'm a Christian and I say I'm walking with Christ and living for Christ, I have taken the name of Christ and yet my externals don't match. Now flip it around. What if the external, what I'm saying and what's in the heart don't match? Well, as you go through the minor prophets, particularly in the Old Testament, this is one of the most offensive things to God, is that you can do taking the name of God things on the outside, sacrifices, tithing, worship, and yet on the inside, your heart is far from him. God hates that. Is it not because of the danger of a superficial, purely external religion? That, that's more dangerous than no religion at all. To practice religion as a faker receives the same condemnation as to not practice true religion, except for you soothe yourself by this external practice that you're actually doing something good, and you're not. Suppose, for instance, I'm reading his words. Suppose, for instance, that I belong to a Reformed church. Does this not mean that every Lord's day, the true God is worshiped? Are we not also a faithful church and that the true God is therefore worshiped in the manner that he has commanded? Yes, but here is the danger. The danger is that I would say, because of these things, all is well with my soul. I might even boast saying, we worship the true God and we worship, it, worship him in the right manner. Yes, but is my heart really in it? Do I use the holy name of God with fear and with reverence? Almost everything we're doing in here responsively, our singing, our praying, our creeds, our confessions, everything we're doing in here proclaims the name of God. It takes the name of God and claims to put it to use. To, to invite him to work and to be used in our lives. And if we're doing that merely externally, but our attitude of, is actually far from God, that's a bad place to be. There are dire warnings that come with that. 
that has to be the sense of the third commandment. Because if the commandment talks about things that won't be forgiven in the breaking of this commandment, we know that can't just be about words. We know that can't just be that if you curse God, that can't be forgiven. What's a great New Testament example of someone who cursed God and was forgiven? Thief on the cross. Thief on the cross. What about even after their conversion, they cursed God and we know they were still forgiven? Peter. Peter. I don't even know him. And they cursed at them. He, he, he was so angry at the thought that he would be in trouble for being associated with Christ. He uses lips to curse God. He violates the third. We know that that is forgiven. We know that Jesus restores Peter and says, I love you. You love me. Feed my lambs. So it's not that. It has to be the person who professes repentance and faith with their lips, who participates in acts of worship externally, but the attitude is not there. That's the type of third commandment violation um, that God hates, it's that, the third, that the third commandment is, is most concerned with. It's people who profess the name of Jesus and then just live as they please. Profess the name of Jesus, maybe even externally worship, but their hearts are far from God. That is the substance of the third commandment, even though the concrete illustration and principle is how you speak and the words that you use. Fourth commandment. Anybody know what does God require in the fourth commandment? Say that again a little louder. Yep. Hand that back to Liv. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The concrete illustration is based on the Old Covenant, wherein God, having engaged in his creative work for six days, rested, entered into a kind of holy rest on the seventh. The New Testament concrete illustration of this commandment is a little bit different just in that Jesus, having finished the work of redeeming his people, entered into his Sabbath rest, ushering in this new covenant rest. And the New Testament gives us this example of using the Lord's Day, the first of the week, rather than Saturday, the end of the week. And so I heard someone teach one time that the reason why the Sabbath could never change days is because the word Sabbath means Saturday and you can't move it. See Austin smile because he's had his ancient languages. What does the word Sabbath mean? It means a stopping. It means cessation. It means a rest, a stopping, a, a stop. Well, stop what? Well, the commandment talks about that. A day of rest was instituted in Genesis 2 for the first creation based on God's creative work. That same, it's, it's a different day of rest under the same principle was instituted in the new creation of Christ post-cross so that we could 
participate with him in that rest. So three things I want to say from the Heidelberg Catechism about the fourth commandment. Uh, the first is the catechism does a really good job, and we should do a good job, of presenting the Lord's Day as a get-to and not a have-to. Our approach a lot of times can be to think about the Lord's Day in terms of all the things we don't get to do. And yet, if you believe that God made us and God so ordered our days to be a blessing to us, we should actually look at where God gives such specific instruction around one day, this pattern of six and one, and in the six days, we're allowed to do everything that's lawful. And then on this one day, God says, treat it differently. Treat it differently in these certain ways. That's joyful. We, we come together on Sunday mornings to celebrate an accomplished redemption. I'm not saying we should all walk into church uh, every single Sunday, bubbly and overflowing with joy. We've had hard weeks sometimes. We've had you know, sadness in this world and trials. But the thing that we are here to do is a celebration. In fact, the very reason why worship can be a balm to your heartache and our tragedies and the difficulty of this world is that we are celebrating a redemption that is accomplished. Not one that is maybe, not one that is hypothetical, not one that is we hope so, one that is accomplished. And that should be joyful. Second is uh, worship on the Lord's day and keeping the Lord's day is about more than just the, trans the, the transfer of information. If the only thing that was supposed to happen on the Lord's day was an information transfer, I need to get a sermon's worth of information in my brain and then I've kept the Lord's day then God wouldn't have given us all these means of grace. God wouldn't have given us prayers and the ability to sing those prayers. He wouldn't have commanded his people to profess and to confess and to be reminded of assurance. God wouldn't have given us the fellowship of the saints. Now, God structured the day around the means of grace so that more is happening than just the transmission of information. So you cannot keep the Lord's day if your approach to it is just, I have to get a certain amount of sermon in my brain and then the day is kept. You're missing out. You're missing out on great opportunity. And then third, the, the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath is our participation in the already, not yet. When we come together, we're coming together as a church. We're coming together in the union of Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We come together in an imperfect union because we bring our sin into it. We bring our divisions and our disagreements. And the New Testament spends a lot of time talking to the churches about what Austin's leading us through in this sermon series, this pursuit of unity. Why? Is it just because unity for unity's sake is good? No, it's because unity here in the church is a foretaste of the unity we will experience together in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we come together and we set aside our petty differences and we unite around Christ. And we, we guard the roles of the church to make sure that all of our members have genuine professions in Christ and are submitted to Christ 
Why? Because the way that we engage with one another in this church, it will never be perfect because we're still sinners, but it should be very different than our engagements with the rest of the world. We should not be concerned that the people in this body are going to sin against each other recklessly and refuse to confess and repent and turn. Well, that's the not yet part, right? Already we have a foretaste. That's what we're supposed to be doing here. We can't do it perfectly until Christ comes. But we can do it more and more perfectly until he comes. And we get a foretaste of that world that is to come. So that's the difference between the already and the not yet. Questions? No, no questions. Ignore that. I never said it. I got to go faster. All right. Fifth commandment. What does God require in the fifth commandment? Who knows the fifth commandment? Alex, honor your father and your mother. What have we said about every one of these commandments? It's a concrete illustration of a moral principle. So does the fifth commandment tell us only, the only people in the whole world you have to honor are your father and your mother? Is that what the commandment's teaching? No, it teaches something bigger than that. You ever thought about Jesus? as a boy and as a teenager and as a 20 something still living in his parents house by the way Jesus didn't leave his parents house till probably late 20s early 30s Jesus was without sin right were his parents no you actually have examples in the Bible of their sinful lack of faith so Jesus didn't have to honor his parents right because he was perfect and they were not Wrong. Jesus honored his parents. Jesus kept the commandment. Oh, give up on that. It takes too long to write. All right. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's no time. See, we're on it. Uh, Jesus, why did Jesus submit to his parents? Because Jesus understood that he too was born under the law of God. Honoring your father and your mother is the first act in your life, the first external act that you will commit that is visible recognition that you are born under authority and that the way you honor God is by honoring the authorities that you're put under. And so Jesus, whose will, whose desire was always to do the will of his father, submits, he obeys, he honors the human authority that God put over him. So that's the concrete example. And then the, the, the general principle you see could have lots of other concrete examples. God puts human authorities over us all the time. All the time. Every one of you is under the authority of the civil magistrate, the government. Why do we submit to the government? Because they're perfect and they always do what's best for us. No, we submit to the government. We honor the government because God put them in the position of authority. And by honoring the one that God put in the position of authority, we are acknowledging that we are under the authority of God. Yeah, but God's perfect and these people are terrible. I know. <laughs> you know ladies, in what sense do you honor and submit to your husbands? Because he's perfect and everything he does for me is wonderful. No, <laughs> because by submitting to the authorities that God puts over us in our lives, 
whether it's husbands in our marriages, whether it's elders in our churches, governments in our cities and states, parents in our homes, bosses in our work, submitting to those authorities is the external evidence that we acknowledge we are submitted to God and we honor God and all the authorities that he gives. I want to read one paragraph here. I love this where I just get to read his stuff and then I'm not responsible for the content of this teaching. This one hit me between the eyes. Uh, uh, Parents. If anything needs urgent attention in the church today, it's the quality of covenant living in the context of the family. Parents, the earliest and by far most influential teachers of their own children, must diligently communicate their deepest convictions to their children. Just pause there for a minute. That's the work we're doing. We are are diligently expressing. We are teaching. We are showing. we We are communicating to our children our deepest convictions. So when we punish our children for annoying or embarrassing us, we're teaching our children that our deepest conviction is that we not be annoyed or embarrassed. Sorry. There must be clear lines of authority and discipline in the home. Consistency is the, of the utmost importance. When children do what is right, they must be consistently praised. You mean we don't just talk to our children when they do something wrong? When children do something right, they must be consistently praised. And when they do wrong, they must be consistently corrected. Now listen to this example he gives. A little child accidentally knocks over an expensive lamp. He gets clobbered. Why? Because mom wanted that lamp. That's why. But then when the pastor comes to visit, the same mom says to her little son, Johnny, it's time to pick up your toys, and there's no response. And later she says again, Johnny, I told you to pick up your toys, and still there's no response. Then mom laughs and says, fully expecting the pastor to laugh too, I just can't seem to get him to mind me. But then she does nothing further. Yet it is exactly in this instance, not the other, that the rod ought to be used, because this is the first serious infraction, not the breaking of the lamp. Whenever a child fails to obey the word of a parent, it's a serious matter. It has very little to do with the magnitude of the particular instruction. The importance is in the fact that God requires children to obey their parents. And if a child doesn't learn that from her parents, how and where is she going to learn obedience? Just leave it at that. It's tough. It's tough. To, to use praise and discipline in our homes for the teaching of submission to authority and obedience, not to mold them into the particular behaviors that we find more pleasing or less embarrassing to be around. Oh, that's really tough. If you teach them this one thing consistently, even when it's not easy, you build a solid foundation in them for life. Through this, they will know how to respect the civil authorities, how to obey the ruling elders, and most important of all, they'll be blessed by God, for it's only a life regulated by God-given authority that God blesses. That's a really good one. All right, sixth commandment. What does God require in the sixth commandment? Don't. Say it louder. Don't murder. Don't murder. Haley gets the candy. That I, neither in thought nor word or gesture, much less in deed, dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor, whether by myself or by another, but lay aside all desire of revenge, 
Moreover, that I harm not myself willfully nor expose myself to any danger. Therefore, also the magistrate is armed with the sword to prevent murder. Well, that's an interesting addition there at the end, right? Um, The church was in pretty rough shape when Jesus comes on the scene in the first century. The Pharisees, we, we all think about the Pharisees in terms of their adding to the law of God. Oh, those Pharisees were such legalists. They made you do so much more than God's command. But that wasn't the Pharisees' deepest problem because the reason they added all of those extra commands was because they didn't actually want to keep God's given commands. The Pharisees' biggest problem was that they were not keepers of the law. And they wouldn't come out and say, we reject the fifth commandment. We don't have to keep that. They would just interpret the commandment in such a way that they reduced its demands down to things that allowed them to say they were keepers and to think that they were keepers. So we saw this when Jesus interacted with them. You're not walking around killing people, but man, do your hearts burn with revenge. Boy, do you want to take this vengeance upon yourself and unleash your hatred on others. And that is breaking of the sixth commandment, said Jesus. I want to read a couple things. The only way that we can cease to be murderers. Have you ever thought about yourself as a murderer? Do you think about yourself as a sixth commandment violator? Well, then you're a murderer. The only way we can cease to be murderers is to learn what it means to be truly forgiven. Our whole, why do we hate people? Set aside evildoers for a minute. You can hate evildoers for doing evil. Well, you can hate the evil that they do, and if they don't repent, you can hate the evildoers for doing evil. But like when you're really, really angry with someone, when you are burning with anger against someone else, why? They hurt us. They hurt us. Envy. Injustice. Injustice. Stand in the way of an idol. Oh, they won't let us get to something we want. Stand in the way of an idol. I would summarize all of those by saying the reason that we get really angry at people, and those are great examples of them, the reason we get really angry at people is because we think we deserve better. In whatever way, we're saying inside our little sinful brains, I don't deserve this. And therefore, my wrath is kindled because I don't deserve this. And it's not enough that I simply get restitution get what I deserve, the fact that you withheld from me or prevented me from having what I think I deserve, you will pay for that. That's vengeance. It's the Bible's understanding of vengeance. And the only way we can cease to be murderers, the only way we can break out of that cycle of anger is to understand that our whole existence now rests on the premise of divine forgiveness. We walk around all day, every day, having what we have in Christ only because of divine forgiveness. And if you get that into your brain, you can actually stop hating. You can stop with the anger. You can stop with the sixth commandment breaking murder. Because what's the opposite of murder? Is it indifference? It's love. The opposite of murder is love. 
We are to love others who are made in the image of God, even if they are our enemies, because our entire existence rests on a foundation of divine forgiveness. And out of that love and experience of love, we can love even our enemies. And then we don't seek the vengeance against our enemies. We don't hate our enemies. We don't murder our enemies. Why? Because our entire existence is in this foundation of divine forgiveness. Now, that's how it applies to the individual Christian. You'll notice the catechism question there also tags on that last line about how it applies to civil rulers. Therefore, also the magistrate is armed with the sword to prevent murder. So this is why we're not just saying all killing is sinful. Killing to prevent murder is something the Bible says the civil magistrate ought to do. Romans 13 says it's why they've been given the sword, is they use it to prevent murder. So when a nation is threatened by another nation for war or terrorism, um, the, the civil magistrate has a responsibility to use the least amount of violence necessary to prevent murder. Uh, we can talk more about that, but that's how the principle applies. Seven, what does the seventh commandment teach us? That's eight. What's seven? Should not commit adultery. Thank you, Thomas. This commandment is about sexual faithfulness. Kids, every now and then we'll talk about sex or something having to do with sex in the church, but we don't talk about it a whole lot. Why not? Why don't we talk about Sex is a normal part of life for married people. A lot of uh, people in this world who don't know Christ are, you know, sex is a part of their life even outside of marriage. Why don't we talk about sex more? Is it because it's a shameful thing? It's something you should be ashamed of and not talk about? No. We don't talk about it more because it's a private thing. And there's a difference between a private thing, something that you talk about carefully, and only as much as helpful and prudent, and a shameful thing, something that you have to keep hidden no matter what, and you should feel guilty for even thinking about it, much less talking about it. Okay, so sex is a private thing. It's not a shameful thing. And in the seventh commandment, God gives us instructions around sexual sin. And this is a very important category of sin to think about because... For a long time, and especially in modern life, people treat this category of sin differently than they treat others. And that's kind of strange because all of the things that apply to the other commandments and those types of sin apply to these commandments and this type of sin. So for example, the Bible says we are all depraved by nature. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is messed up the way we think. It's messed up our desires and what we love. That makes us make an idol out of money, right? That makes us want things that don't belong to us. It also makes us have sinful temptations 
in the sexual realm. And that's because we're all depraved by nature. That means all of us, it's going to be a challenging sentence, all of us are potential thieves. All of us are potential murderers. All of us are potential adulterers. All of us are potential homosexuals. All of us are potential fornicators. That's sex outside of marriage. Because we're depraved, we have within us the possibility of all of these sins. And because of the power of the Holy Spirit, we have within us forgiveness of sin when we do sin. And we have the ability to not realize that potential. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you cannot be a liar. But you have the potential, and you will tell lies sometimes. But by the power of the Spirit, you can escape that identity of being a liar. You can escape the identity of being a murderer. You can have a hate problem, an anger problem. You could even actually kill somebody. But in Christ, there is forgiveness when there's genuine repentance. And he can create in you new desires, new affections, free you from that bondage. And you are not to be identified as a murderer anymore. Not in God's sight. For such you were, past tense, these things. But now... You are something else. All of this have the root of sin in our nature. Each of us is responsible for our own behavior, whether that's other commandments or sexually. The church should warn regularly without compromise that sin is sin and that we're fully responsible for the sins we commit. But the church should also be the loudest voice in all of society saying that the saving power of Jesus is enough to redeem every one of us from every kind of sin and to give us a new identity. We're not identified by our sin to give us a new identity and the power to walk with him in obedience. Private but not shameful. Questions about that one? All right, I gotta read one more. Oh yeah, I don't want questions. You're right, good call, there is no time. I'm gonna read one more paragraph so that I don't have to take responsibility for it. Kids, this is gonna make your parents squirm just a little bit. It's gonna make them more uncomfortable than it makes you, okay? What is the antidote to adultery? The antidote to adultery should be, for most of us, a good marriage. This means a marriage in which there is the right kind of sexual protection and fulfillment. Sex is not evil. How could it be when God himself designed it? And because it is one of God's good gifts, it should not be neglected. Think about it. In every other aspect of life, we apply real effort in order to achieve something. The farmer in her garden, an amateur musician in his hobby, the Saturday golfer in his sport. We invest time and effort in these things in order to do them well and keep them interesting and exciting. To put it bluntly, a good sexual relationship requires the same. It is your duty to be creative in serving the needs of your husband or wife. There is no legitimate place for prudery in a Christian marriage. I'd never heard that word. 
A, a Christian or husband or wife should make this such an exciting thing for his or her spouse that the adulterous relationship will not be appealing. If you're not convinced of this, you need to study the Song of Solomon, where God showed us how much better this gift can be fully expressed in marriage than it can ever be by any illicit means. It's the Eighth Commandment. What's that? Steal. God forbids theft, robbery, all types of it. It's about standards. You should have one standard, and it should be the correct one. You shouldn't cheat. You can't take something that you have no right to take. That's the simplest way to describe the Eighth Commandment. Don't take something you don't have any right to take. Don't take a victory in a game because you cheat. Don't take a tax credit because you're probably not going to get audited. Don't take compensation from an employer for work that you don't do. There are three ways that we can obtain things without stealing. You can inherit them, you can get them as a gift, or you can get them in exchange for work that you do. Everything else is stealing. It's taking something that doesn't belong to you. And the catechism does a good job of unpacking kind of the thousands of ways that we creatively come up with ways that we steal. Uh, the larger catechism is particularly convicting on this point. What is the ninth commandment? Shall not bear false witness. That's the specific illustration, right? The concrete rather than the abstract. The, the concrete is don't give false testimony in a court of law. What is the principle that needs to be applied in all situations. Tell the truth truthfully. Tell the truth truthfully. Tell the truth truthfully. The Christian should strive more and more to speak at all times in the same careful and thoughtful manner you would when you're under oath. Have any of you been under oath before in a court? It's intimidating. I didn't think it would be intimidating, and it's really intimidating. And, and you, you, you put your hand on a Bible, you know, and the judge is there, and you think, this matters. And, and you get asked questions, and in my case, the lawyer was trying to trap me and trick me, and so they were really weaselly questions designed to kind of trip me up. And, and I had to think really carefully, not just what is the truth, but how do I say the truth in a truthful way? How do I make sure it's not subject to misunderstanding? What if all of our speech was that careful? Should all of our speech be that careful? Ninth commandment seems like it says so. Uh, I'm out of candy, so I'll pay you back next time. What's the 10th commandment? She doesn't get to double up anyway. 10th commandment's really interesting, and it's really interesting and not, not unexpected or, or not accidental that it's at the end of the 10 commandments. Because you can, it's a little bit unique. When you look at the Ten Commandments, the specific concrete examples that we've just gone through, what's different about the Tenth Commandment from the others? Invisible. It's the first one that deals entirely with thoughts and desires. This one entirely deals with thoughts 
and desires. And so this one also qualifies all of the other commandments. The eighth commandment tells you that you can't steal your neighbor's donkey. The tenth commandment says you can't even want to. The seventh commandment says that you shouldn't have sex with someone who's not your husband or your wife. And the tenth commandment says you shouldn't even want to. It's the one that deals entirely with thoughts, wants, um, and desire. So Paul said that covetousness is idolatry. That, that, that the tenth commandment is a reflection on the first and second commandments, really the first. And so everything else falls in between them. They speak forward and backward. He said it was by the tenth commandment that he saw how he was breaking all of the others. And this is true because the law is unity. So that's the law. And we got to remember what we said at the beginning of the law. The desire to keep the law and obedience to the law combined, not one or the other, not I say I want to keep it, but I don't actually even try, and not on the outside I look like I keep the law, but my heart's far from God. Neither one of those are good. The desire to keep the law and the walking in obedience with God is the hallmark of a genuine Christian. Why? Because a Christian is a new creation in Christ. A Christian is not just saved out of hellfire. You're saved out of hellfire and into a life with God, a new life of walking with God. You've been brought into union with Jesus, and so you begin to delight in Jesus and delight in his character, who God is. And if you delight in who God is, you'll delight in the keeping of these 10 things. Three plus the invisible ones I got too lazy to write. Even the holiest believers have only a small beginning of the obedience which the law requires, but they do have a beginning and a desire to press on to perfection. Even the thief on the cross had a beginning, new creation, and a desire to press on to perfection until he was in glory. Just happened that that came pretty quickly in his case. Now we have plenty of time. In the next two and a half minutes, what questions do you have? Regarding, I think, the fourth commandment, the one about the Sabbath, I've heard a worship uh, service described as a covenantal renewal ceremony yep. looking forward to the eschatological fulfillment of the eternal Sabbath. What does that mean? This guy's in seminary class. Yeah, what are we doing when we come into worship? God is re-articulating his covenant with us that, that he will save those who believe that we by faith are his people, that he will give us all that we need to usher us into the new heavens and the new earth. And we respond to that covenant in obedience and in worship and in praise. And so you have a picture in here of this re-articulation of God's selfless, uninitiated promise to his people and then how we respond to it. Uh, there is a rest that started when Christ finishes work and that goes on forever. We are in that rest in some ways at all times because Christ's work is finished, but that's not the same thing as 
engaging actively in that rest according to the pattern of six and one. Okay. We take what you said about the substance of the third commandment. Third commandment, yep. No worship better than false worship. How does a parent think about that as they have kids that are growing up and they're not seeing? I mean, we're, we're asking them to do all of the external things. We're basically commanding them to do yep. the external Yeah, um, and my statement that, that no worship is better than false worship is a human statement. Um, f- false worship is incredibly dangerous, exceedingly dangerous. I think uh, as part of teaching people to become worshipers, you show them the language and the practice of worship. You show them the genuineness of their parents' worship. And there's a part of the blessing that God promises to covenant children, and it's a blessing we claim in baptism, is that the means of grace can be effective unto them as they are recipients of them. And so I do think children in that respect, there's a, there's a tension there. Um, but it's like, um, you know, how do you solve the cheerful giver problem, right? The Lord loves a cheerful giver, so you shouldn't give until you're cheerful, right? No takers? By the act of giving, you should be begging God to make your heart cheerful. To make your heart cheerful. God is showing you by the doing of the thing you ought to do, the work that it can do on your heart. What else? There's objectivity in some of these, obviously, because I can have a golden calf piece of art that I'm not worshiping that is okay, right? You you can have a golden calf that you're not worshiping that is okay. You cannot have a, hmm, you you should not have, let's go with the Holy Spirit because that makes it easier. You should not have an image of the Holy Spirit and you say that just because I'm not worshiping it, it's okay to have this. Because he doesn't just say don't have them and don't worship them. He says, sorry, he doesn't just say don't worship them. He says don't have them and don't make them. Uh, and in the context of the, of the person of God, God has given us the visual representations of himself that he wants. What are they? God's never given us any way to see him. The sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper are the visible ways God has given us to see him. And there's this whole body of case law in the Old Testament that unpacks the second commandment that makes it very clear whether or not the person thinks they are engaged in worshiping the object or whether the person thinks that having the object is simply worshipful to God, God sees no distinction there and doesn't want you to have it. But yes, you can have a statue of a cow. Your question kind of builds off that. So thinking about second commandment convictions, particularly challenging children's books. Yeah. The, so short answer, the book, yep. yeah. within the kingdom, there are lots of people who love Jesus who have a different view on the second commandment than what I'm about to say. Uh, but I'm teaching the class, so ha. The, the challenge with any image of Jesus is that it is not possible to visually represent his divine nature. When you're seeing a picture of Jesus, a movie of Jesus, whatever of Jesus, you are only seeing a representation of his human nature. Scripture is very clear that we should not divide the two natures of Christ. Do not separate human Jesus from God Jesus. 
I, when, whenever people say, well, what if, what if Jesus, what if the incarnation had happened after cameras existed and we had pictures? To which I say, exactly. The God of all the universe who was about to inspire the greatest outpouring of visual art in the history of the world. You're coming up on the Renaissance. It's, you know, hey, just hold on, Jesus. Just 1,000, 1,500 more years. We'll get it. Didn't happen. Invention of the camera. Didn't happen. So you cannot represent the divine nature of Jesus with any visible image you create. Therefore, automatically, even the sweetest, most well-intentioned children's book with a picture of Jesus is not true. And it is potentially harmful. Say nothing of Veggie Tales. Shroud and Turin. There's not a lot out there. It's good stuff. You get the Shroud and Turin. It is amazing how far, so it was a major issue of the Reformation, was reacting against the second commandment indifference of the centuries before, and yet the number of Reformed churches that have a giant stained glass window of Jesus, or that have pictures of Jesus hanging on the wall, or that, and again, I, I don't mean to impugn the motives of the people who have them, I don't think they're thinking through that, the whole of that issue theologically. They're giving a very short answer, which is, I'm not worshiping the image. Yes, and there's more to the commandment than that. So just if I'm understanding correctly, as far as celebrating our Sabbath on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, it's a combination of the tradition of the church that met on that day, and then being in line with the principle we're extracting from the concrete. Yeah, why, did, why was the New Testament church so comfortable moving the gathering of believers and formal worship from Saturday to Sunday without even saying so explicitly in the text? Because it was so obvious to them that in the new creation and in life under Christ's resurrection, this was the rest into which we were entering, which is supreme to God's rest. In that, in, in creation, not God's eternal rest, but God's rest in creation. We're done. Thank you. <laughs>